Welcome to All The Therapies. We're two clinicians who try out different therapeutic practices so you can find the right type of healing for you. I'm Abby Crom. I'm Mona E. Shaker. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump in now. All right, let's get started. Well, welcome everyone. I'm so, so pleased for today's episode. We are interviewing Tucker Keatley. He's a licensed social worker in Michigan. How's it going? I'm great. Hey, y'all. Glad to be Uh, here. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah. So, yeah, you covered the basics. I'm Tucker. I'm a social worker. I'm also in recovery myself. I have over seven years of sobriety and recovery, sustained recovery from, you know, myriad other issues. I identify as disabled. I'm hearing impaired and, or hard of hearing rather. And trying to think of what else. I really enjoy the state of Michigan. I moved up here last year, loving the fresh air and the cold weather and came here from by way of uh, New Orleans where I lived for about six years, but I'm a Midwesterner by heart. Other things about me, I'm still an active member of a Mardi Gras dance troupe, and I, wow, I love that. <laughs> am new dad as of 2021. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. Well, very cool. So we know that you specialize in treating substance use because you worked with Mona. And so can you tell us a little bit about your framework or how you think about working with substances or addiction? Yeah. So I'm going to probably just use the word addiction with the caveat that that is a really reductive word I'm going to (laughs) use. Like I'm going to use the word addiction to cover a lot of things and just because it's simple and easy and quick or substance use, because really, you know, people's experience with substances ranges quite a bit from just not ever using it ever in their lives to toying with it once to engaging in it recreationally or whatever it is to like the quote unquote, which is the phrase I hate and I love to remove from the lexicon quote unquote full blown anything, but the diagnosable severe substance use disorder. But I'm a little nervous about this, but I'm kind of like nervous about this in the way that like, you know, you feel when you're about to share a truth you deeply believe in, Mm. know to be true but you know other people might have feelings about you saying that. Like, yes. But you know this is going to be great. So <laughs> my framework is to just pretty much just approach clients with an attitude of like expansive self-discovery and curiosity that isn't typically built into most evidence-based practices. Inherently, an evidence-based practice hems in the approach to f- looking at certain aspects of the person's experience, right? And then addressing those with certain interventions. And instead of like a framework, I'm more of a, like cushy launch pad than a scaffold <laughs> to climb. Like it's as I kind of mentioned before, and, and people have heard me say this before. Like I hate seeing the just litany of like six dozen modalities someone lists on their psych today, and then <laughs> I'm eclectic in nature, right? And I'm going to be a hypocrite by saying like I'm pretty eclectic in my approach, but working with substances is in- inherently engenders this sort of or fosters this sort of um, fanaticism. Whether it's a person who's reached recovery and like feels that they've been saved from a free fall or like certain death, like this trajectory that was absolutely going to end in a very predictable way, which I have felt personally and seen others feel, or that like many of us can fall into the trap of like what works for me must be the way. This is the way you get better. Doing 90 meetings in 90 days in a 12-step program, that's <laughs> the way you start, right? And 
there are others like, like from providers to, to programs like rely on a very rigid framework or a specific modality, which I'd say like 12 steps doesn't really count because it's not quote unquote evidence-based. It's not, mm-hmm. well, not terribly well-researched. Like they think they have the solution and they market themselves as such. Hell, Passages Malibu used to tout or still might run ads that say like, we can cure right. your affliction. Like, Hashtag bullshit. So, <laughs> and so all these folks are like have a stake, a very personal stake in mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. way being the way. And my way is to not have all the answers. And mm-hmm. my urge to anyone working with people, working as providers or people who are interested in possibly looking inward on their use and are either afraid to do so or curious about it, to find someone who openly doesn't attempt to have to act like they have all the answers that wants to know what you, you know wants to help find the answers with you that work for you and i'll end by saying like i'm sure i'm covering a lot of these bullets that we're, we're going to talk about today but part of the problem is reorienting the whole aspect like the whole kind of attitude we have about substance use and addictions and things like that as a society and as, as individuals because with the ads like Passages Malibu, curing the affliction, mm-hmm. right? Some people do get to a state, I know I did, where <laughs> you are in such danger, you are in such immediate danger to yourself, maybe to others and the way you use and the frequency and the amount mm. that you'll do, and you're so vulnerable that you'll do anything mm. that'll help you get better. And there are too many, especially for-profit programs out there mm-hmm. that yes. will take advantage of that. Yeah and sell you snake oil. And I'm just going to say sell you snake oil, including things like equine therapy, which Mm. if that's the sole thing you're working with a client on is not the solution, right? So that needs to be reoriented. It's just all against using one evidence-based practice. That's that's it. (laughs) (laughs) It has to be comprehensive. It has Mm -hmm. to be feminist. It has to be like focus on stigma, focus on shame, treat that concurrently yep. with the behavioral or whatever issues come into play because these things that we call addictions are a microcosm of mental health in that it's an infinite number of variables of affecting the person's feelings and experience in their life and they all interplay with one another and to ignore any one of them mm-hmm. is to be that blind man with the elephant and think like, it's just the tail, it's just the foot. That's what this is. It's just cognitive behavioral therapy. That's all we got to do is just treat the feet, you know? And it misses the whole rest of the person. And then usually if someone relapses as a result of going through a very narrowed program, think it's a them problem. They didn't mm-hmm. do it well enough. <sighs> That's my framework. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that nuance so much. And, and just your sharing, I mean, even just write the ads, like just the term, like we are going to cure you or that's basically saying there, there is actually inherently something wrong with you, right? Like that is yeah. it's feeding off of that shame, right? And especially if someone's in a bad place, right? Like that, oh, something could save me, right? This a miracle pill, which is so tempting, right? I think all of us have, would like to have a, a miracle pill. But, mm-hmm. and it's actually kind of refreshing to be like, because I think a lot of therapists even starting out is we want to be like, we know what to do. And like, we want to be like overconfident and like really, and it comes from a place of wanting to really like, provide great care. But but I like just sort of turning that on its head and being like, actually, you not knowing and like coming in with just curiosity for that person and like picking up on like, you know, areas where there's like maybe hurt or pain or shame, like, Mm -hmm. and, and unpacking that, like how important that is. Like, 
we don't want to miss those things, right? It's not just about the use and the, you know, that's important too, but like, it's not just, it can't be reduced into one thing. Yeah. And therapists, right? Like we're tasked with pushing back on assumptions and, you know, we're all, we all are forced to do a bunch of continuing ed, right? Like we are forced to also focus on our own assumptions. And if we're not contradicting enough, there, there are times and places in, in the session with the client or in the work to like contradict what they're saying or doing, which, you know, wanted to reference our session a little bit, if I may. Like there was a bunch of places where it was like, no, 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 act, no, no. That's a, that's not a you problem. That's, that's, I'm hearing it, it's a me problem. It's like, no, no, you had a lot you had a lot going on. You're not in a bubble. Like mm. your status as an X, Y, or Z was not 0% part of what makes the use frictionless, what doesn't, you know? And coming back and reiterating over and over and over again until it becomes second nature in a way where they do it themselves kind of cognitive behaviorally, like, mm. no, you're not a problem. It's not a you problem, like, and just kind of contradicting a lot of that stigma and shame to remind the person of their inherent humanity, yeah. that they're a complex person, not just a one-note existence, and that they're inherently good and brilliant people as just from the sole identity as being a human being. Mm. And that, when especially when it comes to people who are in 12-step programs, as I'm, and by that I mean people who've gotten to the level of potentially qualifying more than not for that full diagnostic criteria of having a substance use disorder, it's very easy to say it's a character flaw, it's a me problem, and it that's really counterproductive when for most of those folks, and myself included, I still have a lot of inner work to do on my own internalized stigma and shame about the things, about just being in recovery. Mm. Like, I still mm -hmm. have a lot of work where I have, my assumption is my trajectory will inevitably end in this, like, tragic arc downward where I'm warming myself by a trash can fire mm. underneath a bridge. Mm. And I have seven years of recovery to tell me that, like, I probably won't intellectually, but I still feel that very easily. And if I feel that, I can't imagine how many other people feel that. Mm. And so reminding them that they're not just an addict, they're not just this dehumanized title, but they're a full human being who deserves all of the things they might need to thrive. And then identifying those things that they think they might need with them. Yeah. And then working on those individual factors as much as possible. I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. I love that. Thank you for, for speaking to that. And, and you mentioned a little bit about your journey, you know, with substances. I would love to hear that if you feel willing to share. Oh, for sure. It sounds like, it sounds like that's informed your perspective too, as well. So I think it's, it is, it would be great to hear. Oh yeah. This is the field, I think, that's kind of at the vanguard of providers disclosing their own experience and it's still kind of rocky, right? Like, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm very open about it. I wasn't, in grad school, I had a lot of professors and, like, professionals in the area telling me, like, shut down your blog, don't mm. openly identify, no one wants to work with someone as a colleague that they work with as a client. And I've found that to be mostly bullshit. Are we allowed to, <laughs> am I good with language? Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> totally. Mostly complete and utter bullshit especially from the client side. So my history, I try, like, there were a lot of factors involved, right? As I mentioned with my use and ending up where I did. At the peak of my alcoholic intake, 
I was drinking a fifth of a vodka every night, usually within an hour. So I would do my best to finish in one go, like chug. I'd basically finish the pack, get through half a bottle, and then the rest of that bottle would be kind of nipped off towards the end of that hour, half hour, towards the very end there. And I got to the point where that had some very negative repercussions on my body. And I thought I was dying because I had Googled what was happening to me. And I thought I was having liver failure. And a friend of mine who was in recovery at that point took me to the hospital. And they found nothing. It's like, no, you're just very drunk and your body is rejecting any food or alcohol or anything more. Now, I bring that up because I think it's really important to share that piece, that really kind of vulgar almost graphic example, because that was a really low point. Now, I'd love to say from there, I stayed sober. Mm -mm. I was scared. I ended up doing a home-based detox, which is miserable. And just detox in general, I mean. And from there, I started in 12-step program. My recovery was very heavily oriented towards social supports and not as much outpatient treatment or inpatient treatment. That was primarily driven by stigma and shame. I didn't want to go to a program. I didn't want my family to spend the money because I wasn't making the money, which is one of the drivers of my use. And I didn't want to go to a detox because the mm. stigma and shame of going to a detox. You know, I didn't want to do any of that stuff. And frankly, I also had a lot of really great social supports. My family was very supportive. My close group of friends weren't just, you know, using friends. Like they were really, really good. And like, I'm still like very close friends. We have an ongoing text thread still to this day. Like these folks were in my life still and were very supportive of me getting sober. So I heavily relied on 12 steps. I did a lot of 12 step work, gone through the steps twice now. They had their uses for me, but I, I didn't hit that sobriety date until after a really tumultuous year of trying to stay sober. My father had passed away very unexpectedly over mm. the course of a month. And I was I ended up working on one of the most stressful. I was in film production at the time in a career that wasn't really advancing. Again, pieces of these variables, right? Employment wasn't really fulfilling. It wasn't going very far. And that, I ended up on a really difficult film shoot. It was the most stressful that I'd been on. And at a time in my life, that was the most stressful year of my life. And I ended up needing to go into inpatient treatment for a uh, manic episode. I've written about this in, in, in an op-ed in, in the Times Picayune in New Orleans, but mm. the, the short version from there is once I got that stabilized, then staying sober was very easy. After getting that identified as a bipolar being, an, and again, I said, I think before, I don't think that's the end-all be-all diagnosis of me. Like today, I don't think I'd qualify for that diagnosis. I think it was right for the time, but that lens added to my experience and then the treatment to that allowed me to clearly think better about what I was going through and stabilize way better that would have been possibly treated if I had gone to inpatient treatment <laughs> in the first place. But from there, it was, you know, my last drink was less than a month after that. I don't think I had a drink before then, after my hospitalization in October of 2013. And then there was a very dumb, very minor relapse in March of 2014 after moving to New Orleans in the first two weeks of that move that I was just smoking some pot. And going and being like, immediately after I exhaled, I was like, this is a dumb thing. I should not have done this. I'm going to go home and then go to my meeting and then get another chip and start this goddamn thing over again. That's the 
the kind of speech you'd hear from me (laughs) at a 12-step meeting if I still went to them. Yeah, no, I appreciate you kind of sharing because I think it's really important just, especially for people who are listening, who kind of are like, what does it look like to Mm. go through, you know, like potential recovery? I think if you're a therapist in 2021, there's no way you're not straddling how much to self-disclose because it's changed so rapid. Like what I got taught in my graduate (laughs) program versus like what I now see on TikTok, you know what I mean? Us literally doing this podcast. Oh yeah. It's like, I don't, if you're not grappling with that, like you must have be 40 years in the field and like have just landed squarely somewhere because it's, it's so hard not to. Yeah. Yeah. That, and one of the reasons why I mentioned that I am a new father is that's kind of nerve wracking, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I'm a new father. I'm in recovery. Hey, it can happen. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) I think everything you said, it's like, look, it can have, like, you can have this manic episode. You can have this, you know, refuse to go to treatment and it can still like unfold in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And like, just if people are looking, you know, like you said, some people are at different places in their substance use and that's, we do get kind of taught. It's like nothing or everything. Like basically you're either not using or you're an addict, you know, that's what the culture will tell you. And so, but people might be, listening to this and saying, I'm somewhere on that spectrum. I don't, you know, it sounds scary to go to inpatient. It sounds scary to leave my family. Like when people are looking for treatment and there's all these levels of care, inpatient, outpatient, partial Mm -hmm. hospitalization, what do you want people to know about like entering treatment and these different like levels of care? It is very confusing. Um, (laughs) uh, It is very confusing. And we are like, I think, especially in the American healthcare system, lacking a lot of the unification or like, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word here, a, a kind of a sensible unified strategy of understanding and address and like building out and access and making accessible yes. what needs to be known from how things are, are treated to what the contact info is and what's available in your area and what your insurance can provide. But yeah, so it ranges from like the most medical and restrictive to the least medical and restrictive, just to be kind of really reductive, right? Detox is a medical procedure, basically. It's a medical treatment for someone who's reached the medical qualifications, basically the criteria that they are, their body is relying on the substance to function medically. So when I was drinking that much, like my body, if I just quit, and a lot of medications are like this, if you suddenly quit without tapering down, you could be in danger. And alcohol is the most dangerous drug to detox from, which is unbeknownst to too many people. So alcohol, opioids, other drugs that have gone to the point in the person's system, meth, where they have a very adverse reaction. Some drugs, like again, like daily use of meth or opioids and even alcohol, a lot of these drugs can cause psychotic episodes, other things beyond just like the body shutting down in certain ways that can be in danger to the person. So detox is like a medically inpatient procedure. It takes, you know, between two to five days. And then from there, stepping down from detox is inpatient treatment often, especially for the more complex and severe cases, can range between 14 and 28 days. Super annoying that there is just a very arbitrary cutoff of 28 days as if... You can get cured 
from addiction in the cycle Everybody, of the moon. 28 days, done. <laughs> but yeah, perfect. But the inpatient situation is removing, it's a longer treatment paradigm along with residential treatment, which is a step lower than that. And, and then from there, halfway house is trying to remove a lot of the access and systems that have affected the person's ability to think, thrive, not use, building friction between a lot of the things and hopefully with the idea of slowly integrating those things back into the person's life, work, family, outside social sports, living back at home, things like that. Residential treatment or inpatient treatment, again, more medical than residential treatment. There's you know more in-house nursing, potentially more in-house psychiatry, usually other medical treatments that are available in-house. Residential treatment, not as much frequently, depending on the program. Uh, and can, residential treatment can last you know, a month to uh, right after graduating grad school, I worked at a, a program in Louisiana that was nonprofit and didn't kick people out for lack of being able to pay. That most clients who completed treatment completed treatment between six and nine months of living in the and working through the program there. So allowing for much more structure for much longer to help them build coping skills. There was vocational rehabilitation as an aspect of that program, which is a frequent thing you'll find in more nonprofit programs to help the person get skills of coming back into the work environment to maintain employment while in recovery so that they're not one paycheck loss away from relapsing or homelessness. Mm. And then from there, you know, less structured, maybe less treatment in-house for residential than that, then you hit, you know, halfway housing or sober living, and then outpatient with therapy. I guess adjacent is partial hospitalization programs where the person goes for a certain number of hours a day into the hospital or into a, a treatment program and then goes home. And then intensive outpatient is basically the same thing, but not. It's just fewer hours a week of group therapy. And a lot of these programs require the person outside of outpatient treatment, fully outpatient treatment, require a lot of work and time that inherently are more inaccessible to people who don't have the money and coverage or non-employment-based health insurance to cover those in interventions. So those that's kind of the breakdown. And to find what's right for you, I would say really relies on what, how comprehensive the systems in your life, your family, your friends, your housing situation, your work environment, your medical needs, your psychological needs, your trauma history, if you have complex trauma or acute PTSD, what medical needs you might have and how far removed you might need to be from your current daily living to improve your situation and drastically kind of palate cleanse the experience you're in. To I use a lot of metaphors and I use a rocket ship metaphor that'll take too long to explain, but like to recover from full addiction from like the highest level of criteria and severity for addiction and to even just the stuff where it's like, I use sometimes, I don't really know if I like doing that. You have to have a clean, clear, adequately calibrated dashboard to understand the outputs of what you're experiencing. And if you're using so much and you're in such a disruptive social environment mm. and your biology is so disrupted that you can't, you can't adequately read you know, how much sleep you need or what thoughts are actually in the negative space that you've been pushing out of the way. And so the more noise that your experience is clouded by from the signal of like your own true nature and what the signal you need to hear to guide you on your trajectory to thriving, the more noise, the higher level of care is probably better. But it all boils down to the most annoying phrase known to man, which is it depends. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, definitely. But I, I, it's nice to hear just the different levels because I think there, there's just so much out there and it's hard to know. Like, I think 12 step is just, we just see it on TV, oh. right? We could kind of understand it a yeah. little bit. Yeah. I also forgot the yeah. peer support aspect of treatment, right. which isn't treatment, it's an adjunct. I erroneously made it like my number one, which a lot of people do, which is, you know, 12 steps or there are other groups, uh, refuge recovery. There's even stuff like moderation management, which, as I mentioned before, with fanaticism, the inherent fanaticism of recovery from substances, I have very strong feelings, which I think about moderation management that I think are coming from the man who felt very binary about his experience as an addict and then a past kind of indoctrination of like you either are or you aren't a problematic user but kind of in conjunction with you know all of that noise that a residential treatment tries to kind of push out and minimize right adding social supports are really crucial especially sober social supports even if you don't objectively like we just like plugged you in a machine and you don't have an ad an addiction you don't have a use problem that merits detox or any of those issues or anything like that having friends or just people you can connect with that have run the gamut of their use experience is really helpful in getting back to the core of the stigma and shame that inherently makes it go back to a dark place where you're all alone and nobody understands you so the only friend i have is this bottle of gin Mm. Yeah, I have that fear right now of whether or not that made sense, but I'm pretty sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it definitely did. It reminds me of the, I mean, the Rat Park studies, which I'm sure you're intimately mm-hmm. like uh, aware of. And I, mean, I only just recently started learning about that. And right, like how integral the social support is, right? And I think a lot of mm-hmm. times it's easy. And again, like to just think about the evidence-based and the looking at the individual, but how important it is to have what that person's environment actually looks like and you know, what, what support is available to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've never been in a better place in terms of tech infrastructure and comfort of using tech to connect with people that you otherwise wouldn't have or mm. felt shame in going to the church or whatever room that's hosting the meeting to like hang out and get to know people that might be dealing with the same thing you are. Like, you don't have to do that. You yeah. literally can just call a Zoom number and not even show your face and listen to people's experiences and know that you're not alone in feeling weird about how you drank the other day. Yeah, exactly. I love that. So to that point, what would you say to someone who's on the fence about doing therapy around their substance use? Look, to anybody listening, to anybody who, um, just to all you listeners out there, the thing is, if you have a feeling that is a little scary or interesting when you think about how you consume a substance, and you could even like say like how you use your phone or, <laughs> or gambling or sex, but like looking specifically at, you know, pot or, or booze or mushrooms or whatever, if you have any sort of feelings or thoughts where you're like, I don't know about this. Um, If you think about it, if you have any sort of inward interest in that use, and Mm -hmm. especially if that causes you some sort of feelings, then I would go reach out and try to find someone to talk to, whether it's obviously whether it's somebody you know and trust and love and will not judge you and will absolutely support you without condition. Also a therapist, because... Nobody doesn't need therapy. <laughs> um, just blanket 
statement. Nobody doesn't need therapy. Normal is an inherently Western idea, especially when it comes to mental health. And again, hashtag bullshit. So it won't hurt to talk with someone who can at least help you articulate what you think and feel about that use in a non-judgmental space. Hmm. And if those feelings are strong enough, then great. You have, you're in that space already. You can work through that. That's what I would say. If someone's on the fence, you're already probably going to benefit from talking to somebody. Exploring. Yeah. There's some discovery there that might be blocked by a lot of the other messages and stuff that makes me feel like I have a trajectory that'll eventually end in me getting warmed by a fire from a trash can, right? Like <laughs> the messages, stigma, media, all that stuff. If there is a block there from you looking inward at that stuff, then absolutely, that's probably why you're on the fence. So mm. what's the harm in talking to somebody who legally can't tell anybody else? Right. <laughs> yeah. Tucker, I'm really glad that we did this. I think people are really going to enjoy hearing from you, especially because of your own experience and your authenticity about like what you feel about the process. Like I like that you have a philosophy, you know what I mean? Not just a modality. And I mm -hmm. think that is what people are really looking for. You know what I mean? Is not mm -hmm. just that you read a textbook on, you know, like how to treat. And so I really appreciate that that came through. And if someone wanted to work with you or speak with you, how would they find you? And we can oh, put yeah. it in our show notes. You can just email me. I, I don't have any of the social medias or full website up. Uh, as yep. I mentioned, my grad, my grad program is very effective and shutting down the blog about my experience. So I've just <laughs> kind of been in the middle of trying to figure out exactly what to do with that. But yeah. my email, uh, you can reach me at my email and it kind of rhymes with my name. And it, so it's a little annoying, but it's T-K-E-A-T-L-E-Y at gmail.com. Just know that if you want to talk about your experience, that that is not a HIPAA compliant. If I'm not treating you yet, like that's, that's a space that is not going to be fully confidential, but I will treat it as such and not obviously like post anything that I see on the internet comes into my <laughs> inbox, but you can reach me there. Absolutely. I'm happy to talk to anybody about whatever. Perfect. We will put that in our show notes for sure. Well, thank you so much for being here, Tucker. Absolutely. Thank you all for having me. That was awesome. All right. I'll see y'all later. Bye. 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 Thanks again for joining us. Check out our show notes to learn more about this episode and to find all the ways to follow us. And remember, if you're curious, try it.